This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we um, confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly hopeless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his Son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Um, so, word God. This is the word of God. For the people of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Yeah, it's great. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Parker. <laughs> Okay, well, um, this is the part of Romans where he moves from um, the doctrine of justification by faith alone itself to the benefits of that. And what he wants to do in 5 through 8 is Paul wants to give us assurance, a great assurance that we are saved. And uh, it's bookended by this passage and the famous passage in chapter 8 about nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those are the two great assurance passages in the in the. Um, book of Romans, and some of the best in the scripture. This one right here, and then that one at the very end of chapter 8. Um, a famous Greek philosopher named Epictetus, he was one of the great Stoic philosophers, he made the famous claim 
that uh, men are disturbed not by the things themselves, but by the view that we take of things. And that's the mantra of cognitive therapy, is that how you feel, your feelings towards any situation that's occurring to you are entirely about how you interpret that situation. And um, in particular, the kind of story that you're telling yourself about that situation. And with any story, there's always a backstory, and then there's the ending. And so no matter what we're looking at, um, it's so important how you tell yourself, you know, it started and the backstory and what's happened, and then also where are we going and what's going to happen and what is the future. So for instance, in terms of race, um, it's very important that you get the backstory right. So you've got to get the backstory, which is that Europeans since 1450, so this is much earlier than the founding of America, even Columbus, Europeans were traveling to the coast of Africa and they were, they were kidnapping Africans. Then they were deporting them um, to different places, both in Europe and overseas. And then, of course, enslaving them. That's been going on since 1450. So if you have that backstory, it will really change the way you view race in America, especially when you, can, you consider that those Europeans at, in, at no point really wanted to give up that power. And so there are going to be massive continuing um, parts of that terrible thing that happened. So um, it's very important that you get the backstory right in terms of race. It's also very important as a Christian that you get the future right. And I mentioned this last week, but Martin Luther King said that he believed that one day the dark clouds of racial prejudice will pass away and the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with scintillating beauty. And it's very important as Christians that we, like Dr. King, have this hope and this future um, where it doesn't cause us to riot, but that we can peacefully protest with prayer, with hope, with longing. So my point being that in any situation you take, in this case race, it, it all depends on how you tell yourself the backstory, how you're interpreting it in terms of the future, and the gospel doesn't just tell us about race, it tells us about the entire human race and what is true of human nature. And in this passage, we see that the backstory is that humans are two things. In verse 6, it says we are utterly helpless. That's very important, that uh, if you don't understand that about yourself and other people, uh, life will always be very confusing to you, that we're utterly helpless. And then even more than that, in verse 10, uh, and this is the really radical claim, is that Paul says we are enemies of God. And so that is the story as a Christian that you have to tell yourself. That's where you're coming from. And then in the same way that where we're going is verse 2, joyfully looking forward to sharing in God's glory. So these are utterly helpless enemies of God that are going to share in joyful friendship with God and all of his glory. And so if the backstory is that humans are naturally good, and deserve good things, and that is our culture's backstory, completely. Um, if that is your backstory, then you're going to always be frustrated by life, and you're always going to be thinking you don't get what you deserve. And if your future, if the end of the story is simply that you're going to grow old, and you're going to die, and there's nothing after that, and so you've got to get everything now, if you have that as your future story, then you're going to be depressed, you're going to have a really hard time fighting off despair by distracting yourself and thinking about things here and now. But we as Christians have this incredibly hopeless backstory and this incredibly 
hopeful future story. And when you bring those two things together, there's this massive contentment and joy that comes out of that. So uh, let's look at those two things. First of all, the backstory and then the ending, what we believe the backstory and the ending are. In verse 10, Paul says, Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. And so, like I said earlier, this is radical. This is uniquely Christian and biblical and important. And that is that humans are not just weak um, and we're not kind of 50-50, you know, half good, half bad. We're not flawed. We're not broken. We're not messed up. Those are true of us, but that's not what's really true of us. What is really true of us is that we are enemies of God. I didn't make that up. That's coming from what Paul says here. It's a shocking claim. Even to churchgoers, it's a shocking claim. We don't want to believe that's true. And someone asked me this week, they said, how is that possible that we're enemies of God? I don't understand that at all. And Romans 8, 7 answers that question just a few chapters later, where Paul says, our minds are naturally hostile towards God because we refuse to submit to the authority of his law. And so basically we're enemies because we want to do what we want to do and we do not want him to make any claims of any kind of authority over us. And so we are at odds with him. And, and Romans 8, 7 says, not only are we hostile to God and won't submit to his authority, Paul says we can't even do it because we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't have the power to get ourselves out of this mess. And so uh, we are at war with our maker and we can't, we can't stop it. It's just part of who we are. And because this goes to the very core of our identity, um, the very center of who we are, um, it, just is, it just creates this huge like, tearing in our souls. Because if you think about it, this is your maker. Uh, this is your source. Your, the ground of your being is the one that you are at war with, so says Paul. Um, so imagine, and I'm sure you've all had this experience, you're, you're at your family dinner table and um, there's a lot of tension in the room, and um, everybody's kind of walking on eggshells, and you can kind of cut the tension with a knife, and you hear every like time the fork hits the plate and every person's swallowing. It's just an awful feeling. Um, and it's kind of like the very center of your household where you're supposed to have rest, relaxation, contentment, when that becomes a nightmare of hostility and tension, then it's horrible because it is the place you're supposed to find your rest. It's the very center of the house's identity. And if it's that bad when the hostility is simply in your home, think about what it's like when it's in your heart. And this is the human condition, is that we are turned against our maker at the very depth of who we are. Um, we are like the prodigal son in that story where the most profound insight of that son is that he is a pious Jewish young boy who has gone off to a Gentile country to do all these things that, have not, that are opposed to his faith. And then he finds himself with pigs, which are the thing that Jews found the most disgusting because God told them that. And he is eating the stuff that the pigs eat. And it just shows that this is, this is the child's maker just completely, he's just completely twisted. He's, he is at enmity with the very thing, that, who he is, his very identity. He's at war with his identity. And I have a friend whose teenager um, is at war with them 
And he is addicted, and he screams at them, and he's tried to run away. And they've had to have people come and seize him in the night to take him away. And, um, you know, can you imagine the tension at the heart of a child who is at war with their parents? And if we are at war with our maker, then that's even more difficult. Because he's not just our parents. He is our, the ground of who we are. He, he is our home. He is our origin. And that's why we're so powerless, is because... You can't just get yourself out of that. Again, verse 6 says, We were utterly hopeless. And how do you rescue yourself when you hate yourself's maker? You can't do it. And so that's our backstory. That's point one. And um, strangely enough, it helps you to know that because you can be more patient with yourself. You can be more kind to yourself because you know what you're dealing with. Because you're twisted up like a pretzel inside and your poor soul is helpless and when you're with other people who you really don't like people of different political persuasions and you think about them think about their backstory and it's no different from your backstory and you can forget about all of your rights and all of your dignities and your raw deals that you're getting all those things you don't have to worry about those things anymore when you think about this about who you really are and where you've come from so it really helps and i think we could all do well to have a sticky note, you know, on our fridge or on our mirror when we get up in, our, in the morning and look at ourselves and brush our teeth that says, you know, utterly hopeless, enemy of God. That's who you are. And then there should be a much bigger sticky note that says, confidently and joyfully looking forward to sharing in God's glory. And that's the much more important part. Uh, without that hope for the future, the backstory is crushing. And so you've got to have both. And sadly, a lot of Christians live with only the backstory, and they don't think about the future or the love of God, and that will kill you. And so you've got to have both very firmly in place. And for every, for every thought you have of the backstory, you've got to have more about the future and where you're going. You've got to think about this. So this is going to be longer because this is more important where we're going. We, um, we went down to New Orleans a couple of times uh, after Hurricane Katrina hit, and we worked in the Lower Ninth Ward which was the poorest, most vulnerable section of New Orleans that was the most devastated by uh, the levee breaking and just completely flooding the neighborhood. And five years ago, the Washington Post had an article where it showed a picture of the Lower Ninth Ward um, right after Katrina hit, and you could just see all the flooding, and all, there were so many streets and houses just completely underwater, like 15, 20 feet high. And then you see after and that's after years of years of people going down there and trying to make that a better place. And it's amazing. It's beautiful. And so if you think about a slideshow or something like that where you have before and after, you know, we've seen those slideshows and they have dramatic music in the background. And kind of one image is fading into another image. This is like the nature of humanity. And if you think about yourself, you know, if you think about an utterly helpless addict in the past and then it suddenly, you know, fades into a new image of friends sitting around a table full of the glory of God, expectantly, joyfully waiting to be part of him. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Or if you imagine a woman who is you know, curled up in a ball, alone in her apartment, weeping with shame, and then that fades into, again, like this feast of inter-Trinitarian glory where you have the people of God 
just filled with his energy and his love and his light, like at the core of the sun. I mean, that's, that, is, that is the story we live in. And like Epictetus said, if you see yourself, if that's the view you take of things, um, that will change your feelings at this very moment. Uh, the, the, the second you begin to, your cognition changes and you start to think about the thing, the way things really are, and that that's, that's who you are and that's where you're going, that will change immediately the way you start feeling about things. And so if you are suffering right now from um, loneliness or shame, anger, hate, um, you can get through that because you know that the, the last page of the story is going to be this amazing glory. And all this in the middle, all this suffering in the middle, is somehow we know is integral to what happens in the end. And so Paul says in verse 3, we can rejoice now in the middle when we run into problems and trials. He doesn't say that the problems and trials themselves are what we are rejoicing in. He says we can rejoice in the middle of them because we know that they are developing endurance. So you're not enjoying the evil that's happening to you. You're not enjoying coronavirus. You're not enjoying what's happening um, in our country right now with what happened to George Floyd and so many others. You're not enjoying that. You're, what you're doing is in, every, in the face of evil, the end just becomes more and more strongly in your mind. And you know where we're going. And it, it really actually strengthens you for the next battle. Every time you, you go through a wave of this, uh, what Paul calls problems and trials, suffering, every time you go through a wave of that, there's this kind of deep, unshakable sense of it is well with my soul that gets built into you. That's what he means by rejoicing. Um, not that you're just happy, but that this deep, unshakable sense of well-being and persistent happiness uh, gets built into you. Again, even, even with the oppression and the injustice right now we're seeing and the depression and the anxiety, and we have to fight those things, uh, we, we can't be okay with those things, but, but we know, in the, if, as a believer, we know that God is working all these things together for the good. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He's working all this together. And Paul also says in that passage that all the pain now, he compares to um, contractions, a woman's contractions right before childbirth, which I don't know how Paul knew about that at all. Um, I can't imagine what that pain is like. So I looked it up, and um, forgive me for being graphic, but this is what three women said about that pain. Intense searing pain in my lower back. Stomach muscles twisting harder and harder till it was almost unbearable. It was like my abdomen was trying to squeeze out all of its contents. So these are just descriptions that can't even get to what the real thing is like. And that's what Paul is saying the suffering of this present time is like. So he wouldn't be surprised by the unemployment, by the isolation, by the political turmoil. None of that would be a surprise. These are the birth pangs, Paul says. But he says uh, all, the, all the pain, all the suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that should make you hopeful when you feel hopeless. Um, unless you know the glory that is to be revealed and have that 100% unshakable confidence, it's going to make you hopeless. Unless you know that, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. Uh, most people are afraid to hope in too much. We say don't get your hopes up. 
because we know that all of our hopes can be disappointed. We know uh, that if we get our hopes up too much about this virus ending, or if we get our hopes up too much about a relationship going well, or if we get our hopes up too much about a job, um, or even about justice happening, or about an election, or any of these things, if you get your hopes up too much about those things, you're going to be disappointed because, because they might not happen. But Paul says in verse 5 that the hope that he's talking about, the end of the story, will never lead, ever, ever be disappointed by that. So you can't hope too much. You cannot, you cannot get your hopes up too high for that. Um, you can hope you know, to the very end, to the infinite degree. Because in verse 9 says, uh, he will certainly save us, certainly save us from, from God's condemnation. That's inconceivable that God would save enemies uh, from his condemnation. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing and almost offensive what, what Paul says in verse 7, um, which guarantees us that God will rescue us from all condemnation. And this is kind of the heart of the passage this is what gets me most excited. Verse 7 says, um, most people would not even be willing to die for an upright person. But God shows such great love in that while we were still sinners, and that's so important, while we were still back here in the backstory, hostile to God and utterly powerless, helpless, um, that's when he died for sinners, not for up. Not for an upright person. Scarcely will someone even die for a good person, he says. Uh, but God, and God alone, would die for someone that is a sinner, while they're a sinner. Not before they change. Not before they've done anything to change. If I were on that balcony in that little hotel in Memphis in 1968, standing next to MLK, and, that, and I knew that bullet was coming, I would, pro- I would be very tempted to step in front of that bullet knowing that uh, this man could live, you know, in, in, in the last 52 years, the good that he could have done for our country in bringing things together. Um, I would be tempted to take that bullet, and I think you would be too. That's what Paul's saying, that, that's, that most people wouldn't be willing to die, but, but someone might actually die, so I might consider dying, but if, if the person you're protecting is James Earl Ray, who was this horrible white supremacist, it was like a porn film director also, the, the guy who shot MLK. I mean, if he was the one and the bullet was coming for him, there is no way. And it would almost be morally repugnant to step in front of that bullet. And so you need to think about someone that you absolutely hate, uh, the, the, most, the person you despise the most, the person you, you spend the most time thinking about negatively. You cannot stand the sight of, you cannot stand to hear their voice. And I know that for some of you that's Donald Trump, and that you hate him, and that's not okay as a Christian to do that. But I want for you to think hard about that person and that God would, would step in front of anything that would harm that person and himself be killed by that and would sacrifice for that person. Because none of us are, are as morally superior to anyone as we think we are. And the distance between us and anyone else, um, including James Earl Ray or whoever, is, is wafer thin compared to the, the distance between any one of us and God. And so, it, so God doesn't die for good people. He dies for his enemies who are utterly hopeless and helpless. Verse 8, God showed such great love to die for us while we were still sinners. 
And I'll end with this. I was talking to a guy this week who is struggling with, um, with porn and uh, with sleeping with his girlfriend. And he was torn up by it. He didn't, they didn't intend to do that. They got stuck into that pattern and he hated it. And um, he was just really questioning his faith. And, um, and he was talking about a sermon he had just heard from his pastor where the pastor had emphasized, you know, a lot of, you, a lot of y'all out there, you think you're Christians, but you're not, you're not really pursuing Christ hard. And you really got to question yourself. If you just keep giving into sin, how can you call yourself a Christian? And luckily I was studying this passage and I, I understand what that pastor was saying. And there, there maybe is an appropriate time for that. But I told this guy, God died for you when you hated him. I mean, you've, you've not done anything. If he, if he died for you when you're back here in hatred, you know, now that you're struggling with these sins, I mean, that's nothing compared to what he's made you a friend now. And nothing you could do would be as bad as what you were back then. And so there's no way he's going to like flick you away because you've, had sex with your girlfriend or looking at porn. I mean, while we were crucifying Jesus, uh, we were not pursuing him hard, to use his pastor's words. We were crucifying him and he said, Father, forgive them. And not only did he forgive us, but he actually came and enabled us to receive the forgiveness. God doesn't just forgive us. He comes and he's like, okay, Ben, you've got, I want to convince you that you, you, you have a good reason to actually receive my forgiveness. I need to convince you to actually hold out your hand. I'm not only going to hold out my hand to you, I'm going to help you to hold out your hand and grab a hold of my hand. So let me pray for us um, as we move to this last song and think about um, this supper that we're not taking and the God who would die for us while, not before we changed, but while we were still enemies. Lord, we pray that you would show us the depths of your love, give us full assurance that nothing could separate us from your love. That if you died for us while we were your enemies, we can't, there's nothing we could do. There's no sin pattern bad enough that would cause you to say, oh, well, that's going too far. I just pray that you would convince us in our hearts, deep in our hearts, that that is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.